ओम नमो भगवते श्रीअरुणाचलरमनाय नमस्कार टुडे आई एम गोइंग टू टॉक अबाउट द लॉ ऑफ कर्मा एज टॉट बाय भगवान बिकॉज ऑफ कोर्स द लॉ ऑफ कर्मा इज नॉट द सेंट्रल टीचिंग ऑफ भगवान बिकॉज भगवान सेंट्रल टीचिंग्स आर अबाउट बीइंग इट्स अबाउट व्हाट वी एक्चुअली आर राधा बम व्हाट वी डू बट what bhagavan has taught us about the law of karma is firstly it is very very clear and uh, unambiguous and secondly it is very it is if we understand the law of karma as taught by bhagavan it is a very great aid to us in the practice of self investigation and self surrender um so that is why the law of karma is relevant to bhagavan's teachings whereas bhagavan central teachings we can um uh, that is we we can understand the rationale behind bhagavan's the central teachings of bhagavan no? the teachings about what we actually are and how we must investigate ourselves we can understand this um that is by analyzing our own experience we can understand why we are not this body and what we actually are is, is just pure awareness um this we can understand rationally without we we don't have to have a uh, faith or trust in anything we if we understand what bhagavan has taught us it makes perfect sense according to our own experience whereas as far as the law of karma is concerned obviously we we cannot verify this law of karma from our present experience we have to, this is something we have to accept on faith but if we accept what bhagavan has taught us about the law of karma firstly it makes perfect sense if we're willing to accept it and secondly it is a very great aid to us in this, in, the, in as i say in the practice of putting bhagavan's teachings into practice if we understand and accept what he has taught us it will be a very great aid to us as i will go on to explain um before explaining the, the law of karma as taught by bhagavan i'll first that is what bhagavan bhagavan's teachings on karma are are vedantic teachings there are many different interpretations of the law of karma it's understood differently by different schools of 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 uh, by different darshanas different uh, different uh, philosophical perspectives but according to vedanta there are three karmas those three karmas are agamya sanchita and prarabdha strictly speaking only agamya is a karma karma means action sanchita and prarabdha are karma phala they are the fruit of actions so um the, the actions that bear fruit are the agamya agamya means those actions we do according to our own will or in other words as bhagavan would put it the actions we do under the sway of our avasanas our vishaya avasanas those actions are agamya and those actions every action we do under the sway of our avasanas has uh, bears fruit and those fruit get stored in sanchita and for each lifetime uh bhagavan or god that uh, that uh, prasit bhagavan bhagavan god guru and bhagavan all one and the same god or bhagavan selects which fruit will be most conducive to our spiritual development in this life and these fruit here here lots for us as our prarabdha that is our destiny so the sanchita is an ever growth the word sanchita means a heap or pile so it is all those fruits of actions of our past actions that we haven't yet experienced um and that is an ever growing pile because we we generally we 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 desire and make effort to achieve more in our life in each lifetime than we're able to achieve in that lifetime so if we achieve if we uh in one lifetime we we experience one lifetime's worth of the fruit of our past actions but we may uh, accumulate several lifetimes of fruit so the sanchita is a vast vast um a vast pile a vast heap 
we are never going to experience all the fruits of our past karmas. That's not necessary. But that that vast heap is there, and which fruit we should experience is selected by Bhagavan. And those whatever fruit he selects for us to experience in this lifetime are those fruit which will be most conducive to our spiritual development. So as Bhagavan often said, whether you call it prarabdha or God's will, it's one and the same thing. Because prarabdha is what God has selected for our benefit for us to experience in this lifetime. Um, one significant uh, difference between this Vedantic explanation of karma and other explanations is the central role that God plays. According to this Vedantic explanation, the fruit of karma is given by God. It's only, it, it is God who selects which, which fruit are appropriate for which action and, um, which, uh, uh, and, and when, where, and how those fruit are to be experienced. This is what Bhagavan teaches us in the first verse of Upadeshundiya. Karmam payandaral kartana danayal, karmam kadavalo undipara, karmam jadamadal undipara. He says in Tamil, in Sanskrit it's kartaragnya prapyade palam, karma kimparam, karma tatjadam. So that's the Tamil version and the Sanskrit version. What that means is um, karma giving fruit is according to the uh, ordainment of God, the allotment of God. That is, it is God who allots the, which fruit is appropriate for each karma and when, where, and how we are to experience that. Uh, uh, and then he asks, uh, kar um, karmam kadavalo, or karma karmam kimparam. Is karma God? Uh, uh, no, it's not, because karma is insentient. Karma is jada. The reason Bhagavan said this in the first verse of Upadesha India, the context in which Upadesha India was written was in the context of the story of the Darakavana Rishis. Those Darakavana Rishis, though they were called Rishis, they were actually Karma Kandis. They were people who were doing Karmiya Karmas, Vedic Karmas, to, for the fulfillment of their uh, karma, their desires. So, uh, they they were following the philosophy of um, of Purva Mimamsa. According to the philosophy of Purva Mimamsa, karma is supreme. There's no um, there's no place for God in the um, uh, in the um, Purva Mimamsa philosophy because uh, for them the karma is supreme. Um, this is indicated by Murugana in the verses he wrote before it actually came to the teachings given in Upadeshundia. And some of those verses were um, selected by Bhagavan as the Upagatam or the introductory verses for Upadeshundia, just to give an indication of some of these ideas, but the, the, the Purva Mimamsa ideas. In the first verse of the Upagatam, he says, Daruvana til tabam se dirundava, purva karma tal undipara, pokare poena undipara. That means those who were doing austerities in the Daraka forest, who were doing tapas in the Daraka forest, were going to ruin by purva karma. What he means by purva karma is karma as prescribed in the karma khandra of the Vedas and as, um, as described and interpreted by Purva Mimamsa. And then he says in the second verse, karma te andri kadavul ille ennum. That means, uh, except karma, there is no God. That, that was their belief. Uh, ennum, vammatarayana undipara, vanja uh, uh, serikanal serikana undipara. What, uh, what that means is, because of the delusive conceit, they became intoxicated with intense pride, believing that there's no God except karma. So this is the, the, this is the, the belief of Purva uh, Mamamsa, and this was the attitude of these rishis. So it was necessary for Bhagavan, in the first verse of Upadesha India, 
first to repudiate that uh, that purva mimamsa idea, but but uh, karma can give fruit automatically. That is one of the problems uh, for purva mimamsa is to explain how karma done in some past life gives some fruit in a later life. If you do a particular Vedic ritual, what is the connection between that Vedic ritual that you do and the state of heaven that you seek to, that you seek to attain? But what is the causal connection? That is not clear. So in, in Purva Mimamsa, they explain this using a word, adrishta. Adrishta means what is not seen. They see, in other words, they're saying there's some unseen power, but it's or some unseen connection between karma and its fruit. And the karma, if you do the such and such a karma in a particular way, it will definitely give such and such a fruit. So if you do if you do your karma, there's no power higher than karma. That is what Bhagavan was repudiating in this first verse of Upadesha Undia. So this is a very, very important um, point, but according to Bhagavan and according to Vedanta, karma is jada, it is, it is insentient. So it, karma cannot determine its own fruit. But what is the appropriate fruit for each karma and when, where and how we should, um, we should experience that fruit is entirely in the hands of God. So once we do an action, that, that action, the fruit of that action is then out of our hands. It's entirely in God's hands. It, um, an analogy that is given to illustrate this is the analogy of shooting a, an arrow from a bow. Before you shoot the arrow, you can, aim, you can aim it at the target. But once you've actually released the arrow, it's then out of your hands. A wind may come and carry it off course and it may hit something else instead of the target you wanted it to hit. So we, we, the, the karma is in our hands only up to the point where we do the karma. Once we've done the karma, the fruit is out of our hands. The fruit is entirely in God's hands. So we need not be con we need not worry about the fruit of our karma because the appropriate fruit for each karma will be given by God at the appropriate time if it is His will. That is not all. We 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 can never experience the fruit of all our past karmas. That would never happen because we'll always be creating fresh karma. So that's a very, very important point to understand. So I, I said this as a general introduction to this uh, subject of, um, of the law of karma. There will be three karmas, agamya, sanchita, and prarabdha. Agamya are the actions we do according to our will. Sanchita and prarabdha are the fruit of those actions. Sanchita is the store of the fruit that we haven't yet experienced. And the prarabdha is those fruit that have been selected by Bhagavan for us to experience in this lifetime. So whatever we experience in this lifetime is the fruit of our past actions. It's not the fruit of actions we've done in this lifetime. It's the fruit of actions we've done in previous lifetimes. And, um, and those fruit have been selected by Bhagavan. So whatever fruit we experience, some fruit we experience are pleasant, some are unpleasant, according to our judgment. I mean, it's we who determine what we consider pleasant and unpleasant. So the fruit that we consider as unpleasant, even those fruit are given by Bhagavan's grace for our, because they're given to us for our own, they're the fruit that are most conducive to our spiritual development in this lifetime. So whatever we experience in this lifetime, we should understand, firstly, it's a fruit of our past actions, but not just any fruit, not any random fruit, but fruit selected by Bhagavan. And how does Bhagavan select and allot the fruit for each action? How can how is it possible for Bhagavan to keep an account of every little action we do and a lot the fruit of, of all these actions? How does Bhagavan do this? Not by doing anything, but just by being as he is. As he explains in um in um in the 15th paragraph of Nana, he uses a beautiful term in this 15th paragraph when he's explaining how um um how he uses the analogy of um, just like uh, in the mere presence of the sun, which rose without icha, liking or wish, sangalpa, desire, or yatna, effort, a, a sunstone, surya kanta, 
Kanta amidst fire, a lotus blossoms, water evaporates, and the people of the world uh, commence and uh, or become engaged in their respective uh, uh, karyas, activities, uh, and they do them and they cease doing them. And just like in front of a magnet, a needle moving, jivas who who are subject to or ensnared in the the, the mutoril, the three functions of God, or the panchakriti of the five functions of God, namely creation, sustenance, dis dissolution, concealment, and grace. Which, and then this is the important thing, which happen by the mere uh, special nature of the presence of God. So it, how Bhagavan allots the fruit of our, uh, our karmas is not by doing anything, but just by being as he is. Because what Bhagavan is, is uh, Bhagavan's very nature is infinite love. So it is the, in, the infinite love of Bhagavan, the infinite love that Bhagavan has for us. Bhagavan doesn't see us as other than himself. So he loves us as himself. So his love for us is infinite. It's without any limit. That infinite love is what we experience as his grace. And that is nothing other than his being. So by his just being as he is, automatically the grace allots to us the fruit of our past karmas. Uh, so uh, this is something, obviously, by our finite minds, we cannot adequately understand this, but this is all by his mere presence, by the special nature of his presence, by the special nature of his just being as he is, being the infinite ocean of love that he is, all the appropriate fruit of our karmas are, are, are lotted in the most in the way that is most conducive to our spiritual development. So that this is just a general introduction to the law of karma. Um, coming more specifically to Bhagavan's core teachings, the very first teaching that has been recorded that Bhagavan gave in words is the note that he wrote for his mother in December uh, 1898. That is when Bhagavan left in, uh, in August, left Madurai in, at the end of August of um, 1896. He said he left the note saying no one need uh, come in search of this. So his family had no idea where he had gone, what had happened to him. After a year or two, um, someone from Madurai who knew Bhagavan's family visited Tiruvannamalai and came to know about Bhagavan. So they came, they came to see Bhagavan, and they recognized, oh, this is that boy Venkaraman who disappeared last year from his home. So th that person carried the news back to Bhagavan's family in Madurai, but uh, Bhagavan was living as a, as a, as a sadhu in uh, Tiruvannamalai. So his mother wanted to come and visit and to see him and ask him to come back home. She wasn't immediately able to do so because since her husband had passed away some um, five years or so earlier, the family were in very were in very impoverished condition, and Bhagavan's elder brother was just beginning to work. So when his elder brother began to work, and when he was able to save up enough money, he brought his mother to Tiruvannamalai to see Bhagavan, and that was in December 1898. Bhagavan at that time was living in Pavlakundru, a eastern spur of uh, Arunachala, um, just behind the Durga temple. When we, if we're going around the hill, just behind the Durga temple is the Pavlakundru, and the small temple is there on top. And that, that from that temple, it's overlooking the, the main temple. Um, so Bhagavan was living there at that time. So his mother came there. And seeing how Bhagavan was living, as a mother, she naturally was uh, feeling very, very sorry to see her son in what, to her eyes, looked a very pitiable condition, um, living as a beggar and wearing only a coping. Uh, it looked very pitiable in her eyes. So she begged him to come back home with her. She said, you can continue your meditation or whatever it is you're doing. We won't disturb you. But at least if you come back home, I can feed you and I can take care of your bodily needs. Bhagavan was, in those days, he spoke very little. So he just kept quiet. 
and because his mother was um, pleading with him and weeping and everything, some of the, um, the, the people who were there, they felt very sorry to see this uh, lady uh, weeping and Bhagavan not responding. So one of them finally took a paper and pencil and gave to Bhagavan and said, uh, Swami, if you don't want to reply orally, at least write, at least you can write a reply for your mother um, on this paper. Then Bhagavan wrote this note, and this is a very, very important teaching Bhagavan has given us. Um, what he says in, but we need to, to understand this note fully, we need to understand the context. That is, Bhagavan's mother was asking him to come back home, and this was his reply to that. What he said in the first sentence is, Abharabha prarabdha prakaram adakarnavan angang girundu artavipan. What that means is, Abharabha prarabdha prakaram means according to the, in accordance with the prarabdha, the destiny of each one, adakarnavan. Adakarnavan is a very nice term. It means he who is for that. That is referring to God, who is the, the one who allots the fruit of karma. Um, the uh, Adakarnavan, he who is for that, Angangirundu. Angangirundu means literally means being there, there. In, in other words, being in each place. That implies being in the heart of each jiva. Uh, Artavipan will cause. Artavipan literally means will cause the dance. That implies, but in accordance with our prarabdha, God being in our heart will make us act. So we. Does that mean that all the actions we we do are actions we're made to do by God? No, obviously not. Because if all the actions were actions, all the actions we do were actions we are made to do by God, we wouldn't be the doer of those actions. So we shouldn't experience the fruit. If God makes us do the action, he's the doer, and therefore he should experience the fruit, which is obviously absurd. So it doesn't what Bhagavan means there, he doesn't mean that all the actions we do are actions that we are made to do by God. What he means is, in accordance with our prarabdha, that is, the prarabdha is the fruit of our past actions. So the fruit means it is what we are to experience. So prarabdha determines what we are to experience in this life. And in order to experience what we are, uh, what we are destined to experience, we need to do certain actions. Uh, we can give a few examples. For example, supposing it's our destiny to become a doctor. In order to become a doctor, we need to study hard and we need to uh, pass the exams. And even when we're working as a doctor, we need to keep uh, uh, abreast of all the latest research and know, know the, latest, um, the latest medical science and everything. So certain actions are necessary on our part in order for us, in order for our prarabdha to be a doctor to be fulfilled, that's a, ma a major thing in our life. But this also applies to minor things. Supposing it's our destiny today to eat a particularly tasty meal at home. In order to um, to eat that tasty meal at home, we have to have all the necessary ingredients. So we may have to go to the shops and buy the ingredients, and then we have to come home and we have to prepare the food. So since it's our destiny to eat that tasty meal at home, we have to do whatever actions are necessary in order for that, for, in order for us to experience that. So to, whether we're talking about major things or minor things in our, in our destiny, there are certain actions that are necessary on our part in order for that prarabdha to unfold. So those are the actions that we are made to do by God. So if it's our destiny to experience something, and it's necessary for us to do something to experience that, we will be made to do that. We means our mind, speech, and body, because these are the three instruments of action, the mind, speech, and body. Our mind, speech, and body will be made to act in accordance with that. As I say, that doesn't mean that all the actions we do by mind, speech, and body are actions we're made to do by God, only those that are necessary for the fulfillment of our destiny. Um, and those actions we're made to do. Um, other actions, that is, there are two forces driving the three instruments of action, are mind, speech, and body. The 
what drive the actions of these three instruments are two forces. Firstly, the will of God that makes us do whatever actions are necessary for the unfoldment, for the uh, unfolding of our prarabdha. And the other thing is our will. In other words, our vasana, the, the actions we do under the sway of our vasana, those are the agamya, which are the actions, those are the actions for which we have to experience the fruit. People often hear when they hear this, they say, well, how do we know which actions are prarabdha and which, which actions are in accordance with prarabdha and which actions are in accordance with our will? We cannot know and we need not know. And often it is the case that these two may coincide. For example, supposing it's our destiny to be a doctor, the vast majority of people who become doctors, they become doctors, that is, they become doctors because such is their destiny, but they also want to become doctors. They may want to become doctors because they think it's a very uh, noble profession, it's serving others, it's alleviating the suffering of others. That may be one reason. Others may, who become doctors may want to become doctors because it's a prestigious uh, profession. So for the social prestige, they may want to become a doctor. Or for the money, doctors, some doctors earn a lot of money. So it may, they may have various reasons. But the fact that though it is their destiny to become a doctor, the fact that they have they themselves want to become a doctor means those actions they do are driven not only by God's will, but also by their own will. So some of the actions we do, some of the things we want happen to coincide with God's will. That is why often we do actions, and the actions seem to bear fruit in this very lifetime. It did, that it, that, that it bears fruit because it was already destined. We, we cannot experience anything in this lifetime that we are not destined to experience. So though it may seem to us, or because I made this effort, I am now experiencing this. Because I worked very hard, I've earned a lot of money, so now I'm very rich. So this is all my money. I have I've earned this by my hard work. We may think, actually, that money came to us according to destiny. And the effort we made to earn that money just happened to coincide with our destiny. So we cannot and need not distinguish which actions or to what extent any action is driven by God's will or by our will. That it's for, it is for God, for Bhagavan to, to um, know these things. We need not know these things. Um, then people then may ask, then how are we to surrender to God? If we don't know what his will is, how can we surrender to his will? There's a very simple answer to that. His will is that we shouldn't rise as ego. If, if we rise as ego to do anything, we are going against his will. Even if the actions we do happen to coincide with his will, we are still going against his will because we have risen as ego. So if we want to surrender to God's will, we need to cease rising as ego. And to cease rising as ego, we need to turn our attention within and subside back within. So as I say, in the first sentence of that note, Bhagavan says, according to the destiny of each one, he who is for that, being there, being in, in there, there, being in each place, being in the heart of each of them, will make them act. Why that was an appropriate answer to Bhagavan's mother was she wanted him to come home. It wasn't his destiny to leave Tiruvannamai, so he was indicating to her. Even if he wanted to come home, he couldn't because his destiny is to be there in Tiruvannamalai. That is the implication there. But he then goes on to, to, uh, to, to say more. In the next sentence, he says, Endrum naduvadudu, enmuyachikunum naduvadu. That means what is never to happen will not happen, however much effort is made. The very fact that he says, which implies however much effort one makes, implies that not all the actions we do are actions according to destiny. That, that is the effort we make. I, it, it may be my destiny to be very poor. So it's never going to happen that I'm going to be rich because my destiny is to be poor all my life. But just because I'm destined to be poor doesn't stop me wanting to be poor. It doesn't stop me trying to be, sorry, it doesn't stop me wanting to be rich. It doesn't stop me trying to be rich. So I'm free to want to be rich. I'm free to try to be rich. I'm not free to be rich because it's not in my destiny. So that's what Bowman means. However much effort you make, 
You, you may want to be rich, but if you're not destined to be rich, you, however much effort you make, you're, it's not going to happen. And then in the next sentence, he says the opposite. Um, well, the other side of the same coin, not exactly the opposite, the complement of that, that is, Nadapadu entade seinum niladu. What is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstruction. So if it's if it's my destiny to be poor, I can try as hard as I like to be rich. I can try and I can I can make all efforts to avoid being poor. But however much I try to avoid being poor, if I'm destined to be poor, it's going to happen anyway. Um, and likewise, if I'm destined to be rich, I may give away. I may not want to be rich. I may want so I give away all my money. But however much money I give away, money will come to me because it's it's what is destined to be. So what is what uh, what is for us will not go by by us. Um, uh, so what is not going to happen will not happen, however much effort we make. What is to happen will not stop, however much uh, obstacle we make. Uh, this is certain. And then he concludes by saying, Therefore, being silent is good. Monomayirke uh, uh, means being silent. Nanme means good. What does he mean by being silent? Does it mean that we should sit doing nothing? No, obviously not, because whatever actions of mind, speech, and body we need to do for our prarabdha to unfold, we will be made to do. That is, our mind, speech, and body will be made to do. So what he means by being silent is not rising as ego in order to make effort to experience anything that we're not destined to experience or to avoid experiencing what we are destined to experience. So, monomai uh, irake. Uh, uh, being silent is, the, is, is that state of not rising as ego. Because as soon as we rise as ego, we come under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas, and under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas, we inevitably do Akamya to a greater or lesser extent. So, what he means by Monomayirike, we shouldn't, this ego shouldn't even rise to do it, to, to, um, to come under the sway of its Vasanas and thereby do anything. Um, so that's a very, very important teaching. There Bhagavan makes it very clear. That is, if we understand the, the basic principle of the law of karma, what he's saying there is very clear. He's not saying that all the actions we do are according to uh, our actions we're made to do by God. Those actions that are necessary for our prarabdha. That's why he begins by saying, avarabha prarabdha prakaram. In accordance with the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that will make the match. So we'll be made to do whatever actions are necessary uh, for us to do, will be made to do by God. This teaching he gives here uh, coincides very beautifully with the teaching that he gave to Shiva Prakashan Pillai on this subject. That is, in the when Bhagavan originally answered the questions of Shiva Prakashan Pillai. Um, that was in the very early days, in 1901, 1902, around that time. Shiv Pakash and kept a note of what Bhagavan had uh, said, or many things Bhagavan had just written on the sand or on a slate. So Shiv Pakash and kept a note of all those things. And many years later, in, the, in about 1922 or 23, these were first published as an appendix to... Um, a, a verse biography that Shiv Kashim Pillai had written of Bhagavan, that is Ramana Charita Haval, as an appendix, these question and answers were included. And then only people came to know about this very valuable recording of Bhagavan's uh, teachings. Later, a few years later, in about 1926 or 27, Bhagavan rewrote the questions and answers in the form of an essay. So this essay version is Bhagavan's uh, and when he did so, he refined it in many ways. So the, the essay version is the principal version of this, um, of this, uh, of Nana, of uh, Who Am I? And, and in the 13th paragraph, what Bhagavan says is, this is, this is the paragraph uh, in which he, uh, of, we can say this is the paragraph in which he's teaching the path of surrender. Firstly, in the first sentence, he defines what is surrender. 
Anma chintane tabira, vera chintane columbavidaku, satrum idum kodamal, upmanishta paranai iripade, tanne isanaku alipadam. What that means is uh, being as upmanishta paran, not giving even the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than the thought of oneself, is giving oneself to God. What exactly that means is, Abhinishta Paran means one who is firmly established as oneself. So being one who is firmly established as oneself, so that means being as we actually are. So how can we be as we actually are? The means is what he implies in the first clause. Um, uh, Not giving even the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than Atmachintana. Atmachintana literally means thought of oneself. But obviously it implies self-attentiveness. So what he implies here is that we should be so keenly self-attentive but we thereby give no room to the rising of any other thoughts. Because thoughts, other thoughts can rise only if we attend to them. If we are tending to ourselves so keenly, there'll be no room for any other thoughts to arise. And by attending to ourselves so keenly and thereby giving no room to the rising of other thoughts, we thereby remain as Atmanishta Param. We remain as we actually are. And that is giving ourselves to God. In other words, by being keenly self-attentive, we thereby cease rising as ego and remain as we actually are. That's why he says that alone is giving ourselves to God. In other words, though Bhagavan often said there are two ways, either investigate yourself or surrender yourself, here he reveals that the means by which we can surrender ourselves is only by investigating ourselves. That is, surrender can begin we, we surrender begins with trying to surrender our will to God. That we can do without investigating ourselves to a certain extent, but we cannot surrender our will to God completely without surrendering ourselves, because so long as we rise as ego, we will inevitably have a will of our own to a greater or lesser extent. We'll have our own likes, dislikes, and so on. We can't avoid that. So it's only by not rising as ego that we can surrender our will completely to God. Not rising as ego is giving ourselves to God. And in order to avoid rising as ego, we need to cling to self-attentiveness because, when, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludhunaptu, the nature of ego is such, we, we cannot rise, stand, or flourish as ego without clinging to form. That means clinging to things other than ourselves, clinging to phenomena. Uh, that is, he says there, Urupatriyundam, um, uh, Grasping form, it comes into existence. Urupatri nikkam, grasping form, it stands. Urupatri undu mika ongam, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. So the very nature of ego is to grasp form. And since ego is a formless demon, as he says in the, in the last line of that verse, Urupatra payahande, it's a formless uh, pisasso, or demon, uh, it, it uh, since it has no, it's formless because it has no form of its own. So whatever forms ego grasps are things other than itself. So by attending to anything other than ourself, we rise, stand, and flourish as ego. So in order to cease rising as ego, we need to attend to ourself alone. That is the way to bring about the permanent dissolution of ego, as Bhagavan emphasizes in so many ways in Nana and in other texts. So then people may, when people hear this, Bhagavan is asking us to be so keenly self-attentive that we don't give room for rising of any other thoughts. But then how can I do my work? I've got a family to take care of. I've got a job to do. I've got so many responsibilities. How can I do all these things if I'm, if I'm, if I've, if I've surrendered myself to God and thereby not giving room for any thought to rise? Bhagavan gives us an assurance in the next sentence. Isam peril evlo barate potalum avalaveum abavahitu kolkira. However much burden we place on God, He will bear that entire amount. So that means what the implication here is: even the burden of thinking we can leave to Him. 
because anyway, everything is going to happen in accordance with prarabdha. So if, if any thinking is necessary, let him make us think it. We, our only task is to cling to self-attentiveness, thereby we surrender our mind, speech and body to him. So it's for him to make these instruments do whatever they're meant to do, it's no concern of ours. So even the burden of thinking, not, let alone the burden of, of uh, what to say and what to do, even a burden of what to think, we leave that burden to, we can leave that entire burden to God. Our only task is to cling to self-attentiveness, because he is ever shining in our heart as our own being, as I am. So by that anmachintane, that implies by clinging to self, to this fundamental awareness I am, which is Bhagavan shining in our heart, we are thereby giving ourselves to him, and then he will bear all our burdens. Then in the next sentence he says, Sakala Karangalayum or Parameshwara Shakti Naditi Kolkirapadial Namum Adaku Adangi Ramal Ipadi Sayabendum Apadi Sayabendum Indru Sada Chintapadu Ain. What that means is when uh, when one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all karyas. Parameshwara Shakti um, means, it, it can be interpreted in two ways, but they amount to the same. That is, Ishwara means the ruler. So Ishwara Shakti is the ruling power. Parameshwara Shakti is the supreme ruling power. Or we can take it as the power of Parameshwara, the power of God. It amounts to the same. God is the supreme ruling power. So, since the power of God is driving all karyas, what karyas means in this context is whatever needs or ought to be done or to happen. So, whatever is whatever is destined to happen is going to happen, and whatever we need to do in order to enable that to happen, we'll be made to do. So he is driving all karyas. So when such is the case, instead of we also yielding to it, that is when, when he is driving all karyas, he's making everything happen as it's meant to happen, instead of yielding ourselves to it, why should we be perpetually thinking, it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that. In other words, we need not even think about what we should do. We should yield ourselves to God, leave it to Him to make us, to make our mind, speech, and body do whatever they're meant to do. So we should, we need to surrender the entire burden to Him. And then He concludes this uh, paragraph with a very, very beautiful um, analogy. Though we know the train is, is, is going, bearing all the burdens, why should we, who go traveling in it, instead of remaining happily, leaving our small luggage placed on it, that's placed on the train, suffer bearing it, the luggage, on our head? That is, if we're traveling in a train, the train is not only carrying us, it's carrying all our luggage, it's carrying the whole burden, the whole, the, uh, just like the Parameshwar Shakti is carrying the burden of the entire world, everything on the train is being carried by that train. So why, when we're traveling on the train, we don't have to carry our luggage on our head. If we carry our luggage on our head, we're going to suffer. Uh, why should we suffer carrying it on our head, he says. So, Instead, we can put the luggage aside on the seat or on the luggage rack or on the floor or wherever, because the train's going to carry it. Whether it's on our head or on the floor, it's still being carried by the train. So if we take the burden of this world, if we take the burden of our life on our head, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We, if we are wise, we will surrender everything to, to Bhagavan. Let him take care of everything. So. Um, whether what job we should do, whether we should get married or remain single, all these things, it's already determined. If we are destined to be a sannyasi, we'll be a sannyasi. If we're destined to be a grahasta with 10 children and a, and a job that takes up 60 hours a week or something, 10 hours a day or whatever, such is our destiny. 
we just have to yield ourselves to him because none of these things can obstruct our clinging to self-attentiveness, which is the, the very first word of this paragraph, anmachintane. That is the key. We need to hold on to that apmachintana, that self-attentiveness. What, as Bhagavan said, prarabdha affects only the outward turn mind. It can never prevent the mind turning within. So the, we are always free to turn our mind within, um, whatever be our prarabdha. So, and if we cling to, if we turn our mind within and cling to self-attentiveness, whatever is meant to happen will happen as it's meant to happen. It's all being taken care of by him. This is why I started by saying, if we understand this law of karma as taught by Bhagavan, it's a it's a very, very great aid to us in following this path of self-investigation and self-surrender. If we don't understand, if we if we aren't willing to accept this, we will think that things depend on us. Oh, I have to do this, I have to do that. It's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that. It's not necessary to do anything. The only thing that is necessary is to cling to self-attentiveness and thereby surrender ourselves to him. He will take care of everything else. This is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Um, there's not, I've only got another five minutes or so, so I'll quickly now go on. To, I mean, there's, this is a vast, vast subject. There's a lot in Upadeshundia. That is, Bhagavan begins Upadeshundia by talking about karma, but he leads it up to being, because Bhagavan's central teaching, as I say, Bhagavan's teachings are all about being, about what we actually are, who am I? not about what we do. But so long as we rise as ego, doing is inevitable. So uh, we need to understand the nature of doing, the nature of karma, in order to give up karma and thereby to be as we actually are. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. But I won't go, I don't have time to go through the verse of Upadeshundia. However, there are some, a couple of verses in Uludunapadu are related to this, but I just want to quickly touch upon. First is verse 19 of, of Uludunapadu. What Bhagavan says in this verse, in the first sentence, he says, Vidimati mulam vivekam ilake, vidimati vellam vivadam. Here, vidi means fate, that means prarabdha. Mati in this context means the will. Uh, so he's talking about two things here, fate and will. So, vidi mati vellam vivadam is the, vivadam means uh, the, the dispute. Vellam uh, 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 means prevail or win. So, the, the dispute as to which prevails, fate or will, that, uh, that dispute is vidi mati mulam vivekamilake, only for those who lack the viveka to. To, 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 to recognize the root of fate and will. That is, uh, whose will is it? It is ego's will. It is I who, I like this, I dislike that, I want this, I want that. So it is I that is the root of the will. And because we, when we are swayed by our will, by our vasanas, we do actions, and consequently, we, we have to experience the fruit of those actions. That is the vidi. So the ego, the root of, uh, of fate and will, is ego. It is ego who has will. And when ego acts according to its will, it does agamya, the fruit of which it experiences as prarabdha. So if we understand that ego is both the, the one who is having will and acting accordingly, and the one who is experiencing the fruit of that, there's actually no, there's no room for any dispute as to which prevail, fate or will, because for a very simple reason, fate or prarabdha determines what we are to experience. Will determines what we, what we want to experience. So the, what we, it, it, as I said earlier, if we are destined to be poor, that doesn't stop us wanting to be rich. So uh, the vidi is that we should be poor. The mati is that we should be rich. The, the fact that we are destined to be poor doesn't stop us wanting to be rich. 
And the fact that we want to be rich doesn't stop us actually being poor. So they're, they're two entirely different domains. That is, the will determines what we want and what we try to achieve. But fate determines what we actually are to experience. So there's no room for any. It's only for those who don't understand the law of karma correctly that this dispute arises. That the will is, is, is what we want. Destiny is what we have, we, we have to experience, whether we like it or not. And then he goes on to say, Vidi mati ku or mudal arm tanne unanda ave tananda. That means those who have known themselves, that implies the themselves here implies our real nature, which is the root of ego, who is the one origin for fate and will. That is, ego is the origin of fate and will. The reality of, of ego is what we need to know. So those who have known themselves, who is the one origin for fate and will, have discarded them. So knowing themselves means knowing the reality of ego, who is the one origin. So ego is the origin of fate and will. Um, and by knowing our own reality, when we know ourselves as we actually are, ego is a false awareness of ourselves. So when we know ourselves as we actually are, ego ceases to exist. And in the absence of ego, which is the origin or source of fate and will, the fate and will will also cease to exist. And then he ends by saying, Savaro pinnam abey. Will, will, they, um, will they thereafter be associated with them? And I've only got a few more minutes, so I'll quickly go to the other verse, which is verse 38. In what Bhagavan says in verse 38 is, Vine mudal nam ayin, vile payan tui poem. If we are a doer of actions, we will experience the resulting fruit. Who is the doer of action? It is ego, because when we rise as ego, we take ourselves to be this mind, speech, and body. So whatever actions are done by mind, speech, and body, we experience as I am doing this. So we have a doer of action, and consequently, we have to experience the resulting fruit. But then he says, um, investigating who is the doer of action when one knows oneself, that implies when one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer of action, doership will thereby depart, and all the three karmas uh, will slip off. All the three karmas means agamya, sanchita, and prarabdha. Why will they slip off? Because when we know ourselves by investigating who is the doer of action, the doer of action, namely ego, will cease to exist. Uh, that's why he said doership will depart, because doership is nothing but ego, and all the three actions will thereby cease to exist, because along with doership is experiencership. So in the absence of the doer and the experiencer, there's no one to do any agamya or to experience any, uh, any prarabdha. So there's no one to do the actions or to experience the fruit. So all three karmas will cease to exist. So all we need to do to free ourselves from karma is to investigate ourself, the doer of action, the one who is risen as ego to do action. And if we investigate ourselves, this ego will cease to exist. And what remains is, um, uh, he says, nittama mukti nilay, the state of liberation which is eternal. So our own real nature is eternal, is eternal freedom. Um, uh, so in order to experience ourselves as we actually are, the eternally free um, spirit that we actually are, all we need to do is to investigate ourself who now seem to be the doer of action and thereby know ourselves as we actually are. There was a lot more that I wanted to explain, but time is limited, so I, I have to bring it to an end now. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachala Ramanaya